So we turn in the Old Testament, the prophet Amos, chapter 4, as we continue our sermon series through this prophet, reading the entire chapter, God's holy and inspired word given to us, his people, give your attention to the reading of it, Amos, chapter 4, God's word. Hear this, you, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city, drink water, and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your your gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So who is winning? Not the Super Bowl, that hasn't started yet, but who is winning in the ongoing battle of the sexes? Who is leading in the score? Men or women? Well, this so-called battle is actually not very helpful. Sure, as a lighthearted game, it, for a few laughs, it's fine, But it's a serious conflict. It yields more harm than good, as it's so often conducted with immaturity, pettiness, and prejudice. Though there are plenty in our culture who see this battle as more than a game. 
Indeed, if you judge by the media, women are the clear winners today, as everything that's wrong in our world is a man's fault. Men commit more crimes, they fill prisons, guys run the mega corporations, and they have more seats in government. Thus, from the environment to health care, men mess up everything they touch while women fix it. And for sure, the sins of men are evident and shouldn't be brushed under the rug. But does this mean that women are innocent? Well, as Amos keeps preaching to Israel, he turns his aim at the ladies. As an equal opportunity employer, the Lord exposes the sin of all his people. And he does so in order to drive us to repentance in the grace of our Savior Jesus. So Amos is back on the stump again, and this sermon has a very target audience. He summons to attention the cows of Bashan. And no, he has not lost his marbles by preaching to a herd of heifers. Rather, this is how he depicts his audience. He calls them cows, not bulls, not steers, but female cows. And this is how he addresses the elite, noble women who reside in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. These are the uppity, upper-class ladies. Now, by calling these women cows, he's not being derogatory. Of course, for us, to call a girl a cow is offensive and rude. This is the last thing you will find on a Valentine's Day card this week. But in ancient Israel, comparing women to animals could be complimentary and flattering. And we find several examples in the book of Song of Songs. Thus, this comparison is actually one of beauty and health. For these cows are from Bashan. Now, Bashan laid east of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, and it was considered prime grazing land. Bashan was decorated with oak trees, and it was covered with tall grass. It's kind of like the lush pastures of northeast Texas that produced the best beef. A cow from Bashan was a happy cow, with robust girth, sleek and glossy hides, and majestic breeds. With a life of ease and luxury, the Bashan bovines won all the fashion shows. And this is how Amos depicts the noble women. They're beautiful, fed on lavish delicacies, and daily primped in the spas. Of their day, they are the housewives of Beverly Hills. And yet, for all their glamour and polish, look at their behavior. They oppress the poor and crush the needy. Yes, women could be fully active in the marketplace in ancient Israel and in running their family businesses. And they could conduct business to cheat and rob the vulnerable to earn greater returns on their investments. With their six-inch stilettos, they walk all over the poor. But there's more. These fancy dames also order their husbands around, saying, Bring so that we may drink. Yet the word here for husbands is actually lords, which is not the typical word for husband in the Old Testament. 
Amos seems to use this word to highlight a double impropriety of their demands. That is, you can order a servant around, but not your Lord. But these ladies boss their husbands around like slaves, and they do so for more wine. They demand bottle service to feast and party for luxurious inebriation. These noble women live the life of opulent licentiousness earned by felonies and by nagging demands of their lords. The Lord sees the sins of these Bashan bovines and how they contribute to the moral and spiritual rottenness in the state of Israel. Why are some men so bad? Well, at least for some of them, it's because their women are telling them to do it. Therefore, the Lord will not let them escape his judgment. Indeed, Yahweh seals the fate of the ladies with an unbreakable oath. By his own holiness, the Lord swears to dish out their just deserves. And when the Lord swears, it never fails. And so, when the day of reckonings or days of reckoning arrive, every last gentlewoman will be carried off into exile. Amos now switches the image to fish. The cows of Bashan will be hooked like fish and put in a basket and carried off. Just as they treated the poor like fish for the taking, so they too will be handled. No special treatment will be afforded these dames and duchesses. Truly the Lord shows no favoritism, but he judges each according to their deeds, the men as well as the women. And after condemning these Bashan beauties, the Lord brings another covenant rebellion under his judicial microscope. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord puts their worship in his scales, and he does so with a heavy dose of sarcasm. For note, he summons them to Bethel and Gilgal. Now, Bethel was the official shrine of Israel. It was like the megachurch. And Gilgal was another famous worship site with its ancient pedigree. So to come to Bethel is like a call to worship. Yet the Lord tells them to worship, but then he commands them to transgress. Come, worship And sin? Sin more and more. The Lord directs them to multiply their sins? You can cut the sarcasm with a knife. And God does this to expose that their worship is pervasively profane. That there's no part of their worship that is not displeasing to the Lord. Thus he orders them to bring sacrifices and tithes, which is an allusion or reference to Deuteronomy 12, where the Lord commanded them that they could only bring their sacrifices and tithes to worship at the temple. In the law, there was only one true place of worship where God put his name. And the Lord signed his name on earth in Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. Bethel and Gilgal are unlawful places of worship. Thus, every act of veneration performed at these sites is just another sin added to their tally. 
Then, on top of this, he tells them to burn leaven, bread, which was strictly forbidden in the laws of Exodus and, and Leviticus. To turn leavened bread into smoke was a gross uh, obe- disobedience. Likewise, they proclaim free will offerings. Now, we're not exactly uh, sure what is wrong with this statement, but it seems to be highlighting showmanship, braggadocious worship. That is, someone would bring an expensive offering and show it off to everyone for a standing ovation. They worship for man's praise and not for God's approval. Thus, as it says, the people of Israel love to do so. They love to worship. Going to Bethel was their joy. To sacrifice was the highlight of their lives. There's nothing irreligious in Israel. Rather, they are spiritual and religious through and through, but it's still all a sin, defiled and gross disobedience. Their worship is nothing but a polished spectacle for the praise of man, and God has no part in it. And with these two sins pinned up on the board, now the Lord addresses how his people have been incorrigible that they persist in their apostate worship and oppressive luxury and refuse to change. And to spotlight their stubbornness, the Lord points to a unique feature of the Mosaic Covenant. For under the law, by a special providence, the land and weather were a spiritual barometer for Israel. For obedience, the Lord would bless them with nice rains and rich harvest. But for law-breaking, he plagued them with drought and empty storehouses. The weatherman in Israel was a spiritual doctor. If it didn't rain, then some sin was standing in the way. Thus, in verses 6 through 11, the Lord lists off waves of curses that he brought upon them to no avail. First, there was famine, lack of bread, and clean teeth. Yeah, in Israel's day, clean teeth meant that you had no food to dirty them with. Next, God closed the windows of heaven, and he would open them randomly and on only in some spots. One city would get rain and, and its neighbor not a drop. One field would be showered, and the next would be dry. Of course, such spotty raining is quite unnatural. Only God can rain with such spotty Accuracy. Then there were blights and mildews, locusts fed on their olives and figs, disease and pandemic hounded them, nature was their foe and not their friend. And politics were just as bad. Their horses were robbed, bandits raided and slaughtered and left the dead bodies to rot and stink up Israel. The smell of death was in the upholstery of Israel like the odor of smoke in a smoker's car. It does not come out. Finally, the Lord flipped Israel over with fire, just as he had done to Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet all these disasters and curses can only be read in one way. They spell out Israel is in sin and God's wrath burns hot. These painful weather events were calls to repent. They were summons to be reconciled with God, to turn from sin and walk in new obedience. 
And yet in each panel here, Amos repeats the phrase, but you did not return to me. They refused to repent. Israel would not turn back to embrace the Lord in humble confession. The droughts, famines, and diseases were calls from the Lord to be reconciled. He wanted his people to come back into his arms. He was patient. He gave them time and numerous exhortations to repent. But they all went unanswered. Israel stiff-armed the Lord in arrogance. They rudely ignored him. And no matter how much they suffered, they would never humble themselves. They're like that person whose life is a mess, but they still refuse to be helped. You can't tell them anything. Indeed, at the end of the day, this is the prime sin of Israel, their unrepentance. Their crimes of injustice were horrific. Their defiled worship was apostate through and through. And yet these the Lord would have pardoned. The Lord would have forgiven such felonies against heaven if only they would repent. But this they refused to do. Humble repentance did not penetrate the recalcitrant and rock-hard hearts. And so, the season for repentance is coming to an end. The shelf life of mercy will expire. The sunlight of patience will be fogged over by the dark cloud of fury. The Lord is bringing judgment, but note how this judgment is painted. In verse 11, he he says, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Be ready to meet God. And the meeting of the Lord is a double-edged sword. Positively, one meets God in worship, in the light of his face and favor, That's our highest good and joy. Negatively, God meets his people on the day of the Lord in darkness and terror. As a consuming fire, God meets his rebels to bring them to justice. As it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so in their unrepentance, Israel has fallen into the blazing hands of the Lord. And the power of the Lord is overwhelmingly scary, which is brought out by this little hymn to finish Amos' sermon. Who is the God of Israel? Well, he formed the mountains. He fashioned the wind. He reveals his will to man, and he brings darkness into the morning. He treads upon the mountain peaks like a conquering hero. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. The creative might of the Lord trumpets his irresistible terror to judge. This is the Lord's awesome power and presence to execute his full wrath in the day of his judgment. It is in breaking into history of that final judgment. Indeed, it pictures for us the end of history and all things created. For their crimes against heaven and their adamant unrepentance, the Lord is leading these Bashan bovines and these profane worshipers into his coming wrath. 
Therefore, by his preaching, Amos again shows us the final judgment. He paints for us the end of mercy when the Lord will come to judge in all his glory the living and the dead. And this is what it looks like when sinners fall into the hands of our all-consuming fire of God. And what stands out here about this picture is that when the Lord comes against those, they are those who refuse to repent. Sure, their sins are glaring, but their unrepentance glows brighter. And this resembles the same reality that we can find in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, disasters fall upon creation, and it says there that the unbelievers, that they are described as those who did not repent. To the seven churches in Revelation, the Lord regularly said, repent, For if not, I will come and remove your lampstand. The the apostles preached, repent to escape the coming wrath. In Romans, Paul says that by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment. Yes, for unrepentance, sinners will be judged. Thus, we should ever be on our guard against unrepentance. Rather, humble confession ought to be the spirit of our piety. A humble and contrite spirit is pleasing to the Lord. Now, of course, unlike under Moses, we are not given a spiritual weatherman. Droughts, famines, and plagues are not indisputable curses for sin. If the bugs eat your tomatoes, this is not a sign that you sinned. Outside of Moses, we cannot read natural disasters and wars as Israel was supposed to do. Nevertheless, as the preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Seasons of hardship and loss should be occasions for us to humble ourselves and rest in the mercy of Christ. The particular tragedy may or may not be connected to any sin, but the disaster does reveal the frailty of our lives, the shortness of our spans, and the power of God to do as he sees fit. Tornadoes and pandemics remind us that at any moment, we could meet our maker. Thus, humble repentance is a spiritual discipline that ought to season our daily prayers and perfume our Lord's Day worship. Arrogance, self-righteousness, and stubbornness are some of the most dangerous infections for our faith. To think that we are better than others corrupts our religion and worship. Thus, the rebellion of the cows of Bashan, we must guard ourselves against. To commit evil against others, to feed our lives of affluence and expensive vacations. Both men and women are good at this. And impure worship, that which is done in the name of the Lord but performed in disobedience to the word of God, the church continually struggles with this sin. The trends in the church say that innovation is the key to worship, 
keep adding and doing what is fresh. But in Scripture, worship is defined by conformity to God's word. This may sound boring to the world, but it is pleasing to God. And so with open ears and willing hearts, we should be ever quick to repent. And the Lord gives us the most powerful aid to do so, namely in his word. Yes, we cannot read the weather as Israel could, but this doesn't put us at a disadvantage. For the Lord still reveals his will to us in his word. Read and proclaimed in private and in public, the clarity of God's word shows us our sin. It exposes our blind spots. It pokes our bloated egos. It deflates our self-righteousness. And most important of all, the word leads us to meet Christ and his never-ending pardon. Yes, there's two ways to meet the living God. One, at the end of time, when unrepentant sinners will fall into his hands. But the other is today, the day of salvation. It's to meet Jesus Christ who laid down his life as a ransom for all our sins. Indeed, to believe in Christ, to gather in his name for worship, is for us to meet Christ, and he to meet with us in the sweetness of his love and the tenderness of his grace. In the gospel, we fall into the loving hands of Jesus, who will never let you go. In Jesus, we come to the sure promise that when we confess, the Father always forgives. Indeed, united to Christ, he saves us from all our depravity and sins, past, present, and future. The mercy of God works repentance in us, and by his saving grace, no sin is too big or too bad for the blood of Christ. The darkest of our sins are made white by the crimson love of Jesus. Thus, as we are poor in spirit, we meet Jesus Christ and he saves us to the uttermost. In Christ, it is God who justifies and no one can condemn. And those whom God justifies, he will glorify. Yes, your salvation in Christ is an unbreakable chain for known, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. This is the will of God for you in Christ, all of grace and through faith alone. Indeed, having fallen into the hands of Christ, his righteousness clothes you so that you will not taste the fire of the last day. To be in Christ now is to escape the wrath to come. Your justification seals your resurrection in Christ. Thus let us remain humble to rest in Christ alone. May we not harden our hearts or close our ears to the word, but with tender spirits and lowly consciences, may we ever lay our sins at the feet of Christ For his wonderful pardon. Quick to confess. Quick to repent. This is how we remain in Christ. And how his grace 
never lets you go. So then may our worship be pure according to his word, to the praise of his glory and grace, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.